So glad that you are here today with us. We began a series a couple of weeks ago, and we're looking at this idea of no fear. How do we grow our faith and not live as slaves to fear, as we were singing a few moments ago? And now that, you know, for me, football season is over, you know, we can really turn our attention to this. I say that as a lifelong Cowboy fan, and uh, thank you for the many encouragements um, last week. Yes, I did know what happened there. Um, so we will turn our attention, you know, to more important things than that. Um, but today we're going to talk about being focused on the finish line. And hopefully by the time we get through, that's going to make some sense. What are we talking about and what difference does that make? But I want to start with a story that's going to help us just envision what it is that we are trying to understand today. And it's ironic that I would use the word envision because it's a story of a girl who, when she was nine years old, went blind. Her name is Marla Runyon. As she got older, she was a gifted runner. But, you know, as you can imagine, it's hard to run when you can't see where you are going. But that did not stop Marla Runyon. Here is a picture of her in her heyday. She is, by the way, the first person who is legally blind to run in the Olympics, which she did in the year 2000. And she won six national championships, um, and she finished in the top five in some of the nation's most famous marathons. And you might be, you know, wondering and wanting to ask the same question that was asked to her by a reporter one day. How can you run toward a finish line that you can't see? And in that interview, she talked about how she works in the pack and she hears the noises of the other runners and they're breathing. And, you know, for winning, she just gets in front of the noise, which I thought, well, that's simple, right? Just get in front of the noise. Um, but then she talked about this at the end. And I think this really sets us up for where we're going. How can you run toward a finish line you can't see? I can't see it, but I know it's there. And she continued to run to a finish line that to her was unseen, but every bit real. So why do we start with that? Because here's where we left off last week. The Apostle Paul was talking about how there are difficult things that happen in this world, but there's something bigger than that. And there are ways to endure and to overcome. And at the end of that section, he said, so we fix our eyes on what is, not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And we talked about how fix your eyes is a conscious choice, a decision to lock your eyes, to fix your gaze, to put your hopes and your attention in the direction of what is eternal, what is unseen. And then I think, you know, my question would be, okay, Paul, what is that though? What exactly are we fixing our eyes on? What can we understand about what cannot be seen that comes across like a finish line that helps us here and now and gives us confidence for the way forward. And in addressing this, I think we're going to take a look at two of the big questions that people ask. They still ask it today, but people have been asking these questions for a long, long time. First one, what happens when I die? And what is on the other side of that? One minute after my body stops working here, then what? And then the second question that goes along with it, what is there to live for now? And if we have some confidence about what is to come, what difference does that make here and now 
And that's what we find in this amazing, amazing passage. So let's jump in. So right after fix our eyes, here's the next thing that Paul says. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. What is he talking about? He's using metaphors, figures of speech. And when he talks about this earthly tent, you know, he's talking about our physical bodies. And when you think about a tent, it's not a place you want to live long term, right? It's temporary. It's a little bit more fragile. It can, you know, kind of erode over time. And he's talking about here and now, this is an earthly tent. It's temporary and it's fragile. And we kind of know where it all ends. We don't like to talk about death, but we know that it's a reality. It continues to be the second greatest fear of people in America is dying. You know what the greatest fear is? Public speaking. <laughs> Once again. And that led Jerry Seinfeld to say this. So at a funeral, the guy in the coffin is better off than the guy giving the eulogy. I don't know um, if that's true or not. But here's what the Apostle Paul is saying is, you know, we live in this earthly tent. These bodies are fragile. And one day we know that they're not going to last forever. But do you notice the contrast with an eternal house, right? So one is an earthly tent here and now. The other is a house. And the contrast is between something fragile and something that is solid and strong. And it's not just earthly, it is eternal. That is going to be forever and ever. And the contrast between these bodies as an earthly tent and an eternal house his clear implication is that forever and ever, what kind of existence are we going to live? It is going to be one that is physical. Where the immaterial part of us, that spirit, soul, heart that we all know, we can't see it under a microscope, but the thing that makes you, you, and gives you some of the inclinations that you have, that when we die, yeah, that part is separated from our body. But one day, God is going to raise those bodies again. And then we're going to be in, a, in an eternal house. Resurrected bodies, spirit and soul reunited, but our forever and ever will be a physical existence. But it will not end the same way that it does here. It's an eternal house. So let me ask you this question. If you ever thought about heaven, do you look forward to heaven? There are a lot of people who in our day think this way, you know, the time to have every experience that I want to have is here and now. And we refer, you know, even to bucket list things and, and that's fine. But let me tell you, based on what Paul's telling us here, this is not our only shot to have the greatest experience that we can have. But many of the perceptions about what heaven is going to be like are kind of weird. You know, they talk about, you know, floating on clouds and having this foggy, immaterial sort of existence. We're just kind of out there in the universe and you think, man, how great can that be? And I wonder if one of the images that we might have of heaven is, you know, kind of like this. Angels playing the harp, turning their necks in an angle that looks like it's going to create some neck pain. I don't know. That doesn't look really comfortable. And we think, is that what forever and ever is going to be like? Is just kind of floating around and I don't even listen to harp music. So what is that all going to be like? And Apostle Paul's telling us, no, if that's what you think, you need to rethink it. And you need to get the vision that he has for us here. Isaac Asimov was a science fiction writer, atheist, and he said these words, whatever the tortures of hell, the boredom of heaven would be worse. And if you have any 
inkling of that, get a glimpse of what Paul shares with us. Because the hope that we have in what is to come, the Christian hope for the future, is not to be disembodied and floating around and becoming a ghost or any version of that, but to be re-embodied. A resurrection body reunited one day with that spirit soul part of who we are, a physical existence in a real place. But what happens meanwhile? Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. He continues this metaphor idea and there's this instinctive part hardwired into the human soul that we were made for eternity, that we do not, you know, just die and our lives end and it's like a candle going out. But we were made to live forever and we were made for a relationship with God and that's what we long for. And that's when we will be fully clothed, but we are not there yet. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened. Anybody groaning as the, you know, the years go on? I just had a birthday with a zero at the end. I groan a little bit when I get up from a seated position now. And that's just the way that it goes. Because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwellings so that what is mortal may be, I love this next phrase, swallowed up by life. You know, Paul says it's coming one day. Life. And by the power of God and the grace of God and the love of God, death will be no more. And all that death brings and all the separation, all the sadness and all the hardship, one day it is going to be engulfed, swallowed up, consumed by life. And only life will rule the day. Now, Paul's used that phrase once before. We're in a letter called 2 Corinthians, and obviously that means he wrote a 1 Corinthians. And about a year before this letter, he did. And he dedicated an entire chapter to this whole idea of resurrection and life and all that Jesus accomplished on our behalf and how our hope is in him and how that gives us confidence of what is to come. Here's just a section of that from 1 Corinthians. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. That's what Jesus did. And I think we all know about death. And I think we all know that that can feel like there's not a victory right now because we continue to encounter it. But one day, life will prevail. And the existence of those who are followers of Jesus in that day will be life and victory and community in a real place. There's a line from the book of Revelation that talks again about the reality of what is to come, not floating on clouds. I saw a new heaven and a new earth forever and ever will be lived on a renovated, restored, redeemed earth, not in the clouds, but think of all of, that makes this world beautiful. And this world is broken. And sometimes people push back and they go, you know, I can't believe in a God who would create a world like this where there are kids starving and, you know, cancer just seems to ravage families and all of that. And I just, 
you know, my short answer to that is this is not the world that God made. The world that God made was perfect. And it was made for people to walk together with God and walk together with each other. But you know what else God gave us? He gave us a choice. He gave us free will. And one day, mankind decided to walk outside of God's perfection. And that broke a lot. Relationships, the world we live in. But one day, that will be restored forever and ever. Also in Revelation, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. No more separation. They will be his people and God himself will be their God and he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Does that sound good to anybody? And that day's coming. And that day does not spare us from the tears that we experience in this world. But this does tell us that one day God will wipe those tears away and it also means that he knows about those tears. But it's not always going to be like this. For the old order of things had passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Another way to translate that is, I am making all things new. Now, for a long, long time, in my own understanding of what is to come, I thought, wow, one day God's going to make all new things, things that we've never seen or entertained before. But that's not what this is saying. It's saying everything that is broken and polluted and run down will be renovated and restored and redeemed. Things like this are pictured in what is to come. A new earth, we saw that. Trees and rivers and animals and people, people living in community with each other. If you've lost a loved one, there's a reunion coming. And things will not always be the way that they are. Death will not always separate. One day it'll be swallowed up by life. Back to 2 Corinthians. Now, the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose, for living together in eternity with God and others, is God, who has given us a spirit as deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. What does that mean? In moments where you maybe have experienced just this overwhelming sense of love or community or sense of awe as you stood in this world, that's just a little preview of what is to come, where every moment will be that. Because everything that separates us from that will be removed. So what does all of that mean? Paul, if you're telling us that the end of life here is not the end, that we don't die, not in the sense, obviously, our physical bodies do, but that immaterial part of us goes on and one day there's going to be this resurrection and this restoration between our bodies and our spirits. What does that mean here and now? What difference does it make that we can know that? I think here's one of the things. I can live through Earth's uncertainty when I'm confident of heaven's reality. And I think it also means this, that what I believe about eternity will determine how I live today. Having that confidence, that assurance, that picture, that vision of the finish line and all that is beyond it influences and affects and changes the way that we live here and now. And if you go, well, how? How does it do that? That's where Paul goes next. He says, we can have less fear. 
because no one and nothing can take away what God gives. Therefore, we are also confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. So if we're living life here and now in this earthly tent, we can have confidence. Why? Because we know how the story ends. We know where we're going. We know what God is going to do. And that gives confidence and it allows us to live here in this world by faith and not by sight. To know there's a finish line. And I can't see it here and now, but I know it's there. And then he also says, we are, here's that word again, confident. I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. You know what? There is going to be perfect, but here and now is good. It's great. It's fallen and it's broken, but life is good and the best is yet to come. That can lessen our fear. Another implication of this, we have more purpose that what I do now matters eternally that the things we do here and now matter. So we make it our goal to please him, to please God, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. So whatever we do, we are trying to please God. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due to us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Now, here's something I want to break down for us a little bit. Bible talks about judgment, and there's a couple judgment seats. One is called the great white throne judgment. It's mentioned in the book of Revelation, and that is where, you know, everybody stands before God and heaven and hell, you know, are the things that are just determined at that moment. And, you know, that's what happens. One of two eternal destinies. But this one is different. This is a word that's a little bit different than the other, and it refers to something that is more of a reward for the things that are done in the body. What do you mean? In the Greek games, and if you're familiar with the Greeks back in ancient times, they loved competition and they had games. They invented the Olympics. And there was a judge, somebody who oversaw the event. And when an event was completed, the winner would go and stand before that judge. He sat on the Bema seat. And the word here is the Bema of Christ. And when they approached that judge on that seat, he would take a laurel wreath often and place it on the head of that contestant who won. It was like their reward. So what this means is that what we do here and now that there's a reward that's coming, and we aren't told everything about that. Somebody asked this question of the first service, so are you saying that, you know, we get to heaven because of the things that we do? Absolutely not. We're saved by grace, but we're rewarded for what we do. And does that create tears in heaven where, you know, there are going to be people who got a lot of those laurel wreaths and some have hardly any? Here's what the book of Revelation pictures for us. One day, all of those rewards, you know what we are going to do with them? We're going to take those off and throw it at the feet of Jesus. It is more opportunity to honor God than about tears. But we are told that there are things that we can do here and now that have an impact in eternity. And one day, there are those words that Jesus can speak, words that our hearts were made for. Well done good and faithful servant. Well done. So more purpose. 
since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord, and he's not afraid of God. This is the word fear that has this sense of awe and wonder and a little bit of terror. If you've ever maybe stood in front of the ocean or been on the top of one of these mountains or been at some awesome place, and you just are overwhelmed by it all, that's what he's talking about. And because we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. Notice, he's not trying to win a culture war. He's trying to persuade others and pointing in the direction of the God who has come to our rescue and given us hope here and now and in what is to come. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. So it gives us more purpose. It also gives us deep motivation. Why? Because everybody matters to God. Everybody. Even the people who vote ridiculously because they don't vote like I do? Yeah, them too, right? And about the people who do things that I think are crazy? Yep, everybody matters to God. And it's easy to think, well, God loves me and my people, but he doesn't love them and those people. Look at what Paul says. For Christ's love compels us. This is a motivation word. It's what drives us. It's the engine inside of our hearts. Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for how many? All. And therefore, all died. And he died for how many? All. That those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. And so, what Jesus did, the gift of God to make a way for broken people separated from God to enter into a relationship with God, that gift is available. And Jesus has done everything necessary. But there's a point at which we've got to take personal possession of that gift. We've got to make it our own and recognize that that was for me and that Jesus did that for me. Jesus died for all. Jesus died for me. And so... From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. What does he mean we don't regard anybody by a worldly point of view? Have you noticed that people get put into categories of all different kinds? Right now, we got red states, blue states, Democrats, Republicans, progressives, conservatives. And we just put all these labels. And we live at a time, especially, where it seems like we're living on the extremes and there's no room in between. And if you're not on our extreme side, you must be on the other side. And we create all these categories. And there's so much animosity that goes in all directions. You know what Paul's saying? Let's not view the world and people in it that way. But let's view people through this lens that he's been talking about, that Jesus died for all, that gift is available. And so we don't put people in those kind of categories. We see people and every single one of them matters to God. You will never lock eyes with someone who does not matter to God. So what does that mean? Finish line oriented people unleash compassion on earth. What we know about there and then should make a huge difference here and now and should influence the way that we think, the way that we act, the things that we, we do. And, you know, I like history. I don't know if you do, but, you know, there's part of me that when I read things like that, I think, did the Corinthians, the people that Paul wrote this to, did they get it? Did they put this into practice? 
And I don't know about that generation, but a little bit later than that, there was a pastor of that church in Corinth. His name was Dionysus. About 170 AD, and he was pastoring in the middle of a time when there was a pandemic. Yeah, believe it or not, there was a time when there were pandemics in this world, and it was a crazy thing, and it was really hard, and shut stuff down. Um, but this one was really bad. And this is what he says during that time. Most of our brethren, these are you know, followers of Jesus, showed love and loyalty in not sparing themselves while helping one another, tending to the sick with no thought of danger. There were people dying of a deadly virus. And many times their families abandoned them. People were just left out in the streets. And there were followers of Jesus who said, you can come into our house. We'll take care of you. And they did that. Why? Because they got it. Gladly departing this life with them after becoming infected with their disease, many who nursed others to help died themselves, thus transferring the death to themselves. What would lead people like that to do something like that? Could it be that they were focused on the finish line, saying, it's not just here and now, but what we do here and now matters, and there's nobody that we lock eyes with who does not matter to God. Finish line-oriented people unleash compassion on earth. If you're new at Washington Heights, you know, I'll just tell you this. I think it's an important thing to know. Part of our heartbeat is compassion. And so we do compassion projects. And, you know, um, what does compassion mean? It is showing God's love in practical ways, in real ways. And if you were with us, you know, from Thanksgiving to Christmas, every week we did a project outside of ourselves. Some of it was close here. Some of it was halfway around the world. Why is that? Because what we know about the future should influence how we act here and now. Well, we have the next opportunity right here on the horizon. Let me show you the view out of my office door here not that long ago. Um, here's some boxes. And you might be familiar with boxes if you were here during the other season. Well, this is a little different. These are boxes for brothels. And if you just thought, what did he just say? Yeah, I know. I get it. Um, but let me explain. <laughs> Jesus died for how many? For all. And so that means everybody matters to God. So what we're going to do with these boxes is we're going to fill them. And they are going to be taken by a group of people, and they're going to drive the length of Route 80 through Nevada, from Wendover to Reno, and Reno back to Wendover, stopping at brothels, delivering these boxes. And what are we saying by delivering these boxes? You matter to God, and you matter to us. And it's just a practical expression of the love of God in a real way. Here's an image from the last time and all of our group here and the young lady with the red hat on was the recipient of one of those boxes who wanted to be photographed with the group that was delivering that. You've never locked eyes with somebody who does not matter to God. Let me give you a sense. These boxes now, they're available for you. And as you head out of the main entrance here, you can grab one of those. We encourage you to write a personalized note in there. It gives a list of things to include in there. In the note, can I just encourage you, don't share the story of Rahab. You know, we've had that in the past. And if you know anything about that, it's a little bit too 
obvious and everything, but just encourage somebody and say, you matter to God and you matter to me in your own words. If you grab one of those boxes, the return date for that is February 4th, a couple Sundays out here, so you got a couple weeks to fill that. Can I give you also a sense of, well, what's the next thing beyond that? Maybe you're familiar with what happened in southern Utah and Colorado City and Warren Jeffs and that community there that was um, a polygamous community and some of the things that transpired there. Well, he's been arrested and some of that has come apart. Well, there are a lot of people who are in a, in a hard place. And so this is still in the planning stages, but around Easter, Easter's at the end of March this year, we want to have a group go down there and we're going to serve the people who are part of that and just meet needs in practical ways. So you can kind of wait to hear some of the details on that. Why do we do that? Finish line-oriented people unleash compassion in this world. And because God has made a way for us to belong to him and we know what's coming, that should influence and affect the way that we live here and now. Would you bow your heads together with me as I pray? God, thank you for what you have revealed to us that really is our hope and our confidence. And God, we can know that in this world there is nothing that can take away what you offer to us and you have made a way. And with you we are safe. And one day we'll be with you forever. No separation. And thank you for all that we have to look forward to, but God, also thank you that the things that we do here and now, they make a difference, they matter. And so God, continue to show us um, how we can make it our goal, just as Paul said, to please you, not because we're earning our way into your favor, but because we're responding to the grace that we have been given. Thank you for your great love for us, and God, show us all what you have for us on this day, this week, this month, this year, and beyond. And may it only be to your honor and to your glory. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.